0: Hello. Anyone who's used a computer, a phone or a tablet is familiar with the idea of editing out your mistakes. Type something wrong and with a few keystrokes you can replace your misspelled word with the correct version. This is of course much harder, if not impossible to do with life. From the relatively trivial, such as buying a book that bores us, to taking the wrong job, we have to accept that there's no delete key, there's no editing function to smooth away our errors. But in recent years it's become clear that in one fundamental area of biological research it might be possible to do just that. Using a technology called CRISPR-Cas9, it's possible to edit out what some may call mistakes and to repair faulty genes. The implications of what's been called gene editing are widespread and profound, raising important questions about how, even if, this technology should ever be used. The problem of course isn't new. Science regularly throws up new ideas. Some merely challenge our worldview, but others carry stronger and more dangerous risks. The most common way of dealing with these risks is through regulation. All technologies from nuclear power to nanotechnology are regulated. Regulation is what keeps us safe, for example, from the potential dangers of human cloning. The details will vary from country to country, but the broad reasoning is the same. Now, the best regulations consider a range of points of view and gene editing should be no exception. But that isn't always what happens. In this podcast, we're going to explore gene editing from the perspective of ethics and religion. And that's because these are two perspectives we don't often hear in public debates. The podcast is a component of a research project, and it's called Contending Modernities. It's being led by researchers from the University of Notre Dame, and it explores how the forces of religion and secularism are interacting in the modern world. My name is Esan Masood and I'm a science journalist. Together with researchers, academics and commentators, we're going to be discussing the question How should we regulate gene editing technologies? Around the table with me here in the studio are five panellists drawn from academia and from journalism. And they, in turn, will quiz a number of experts in ethics and religion. These are our witnesses and they will offer their own perspectives. But before we hear from our panellists, I just want to draw your attention to a report published in February 2017, the report's from the US National Academy of Sciences. And to paraphrase, it says the US should consider gene editing for humans, but in a tightly controlled and limited number of circumstances. Now, that's still a pretty bold statement because, until now, the consensus among scientists has been that gene editing should not be considered for human use. So. Let's start by hearing from our panelists today. We're seeing the first glimmers of this technology being used in people.
1: Can you introduce yourselves? I'm Michael Fitzgerald, and I'm a journalist and articles editor at the Boston Globe magazine. Many of these people think that doing things that are beyond regulation, faster than regulation, can keep up with, and regulation gets in their way. So I think it's probably wise for us to look at this new technology and say well you know why don't we try to get ahead of this i also commit this as a mainland protestant so from uh, the perspective of religion and religious belief you're not going to get one point of view thank you michael deborah deborah blum
2: Uh, my name is deborah blum i'm the director of the night science journalism program at mit my Attitude is always caution because I've followed certain technologies, starting with uh, uh, particularly recently looking at radioactive elements and the research that followed out of that discovery in which we know from our past that there tends to be a, this is an amazing best thing without looking forward in an intelligent Way, always, and without getting ahead of the technology until we are confronted with the consequences. And so, my tendency, again, agreeing with Michael, is that it would be very smart to try to look ahead in this case.
0: Thank you. Although-
3: um, thank you. My name is Adil Najim. I am the um, Dean of the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University. Um, I come to this from two areas that I work on. One is policy making and the ethics of policy making, not the ethics of particular policy, but the process of how policy gets made. And the other one uh, is uh, even more important to me. Uh, I study the global environment, in particular climate change, and uh, issues like this bring to for not only what they do to the human species but what it does to the relationship between humans uh, and the rest of the
0: planet thank you aline
4: my name is aline kalbion i'm a scholar of religious ethics i teach at florida state university in the department of religion there And my research has really focused on a number of questions, namely, how is it that religious communities think about moral problems? How do they articulate their thoughts about moral problems? And how do they change their views about moral issues? There's a tendency to immediately presume that religious communities are going to hold views that that aren't flexible or open to Broader thinking, and how do we bring religious voices into public deliberation in a way that values them without imposing their views on others who might not share them?
0: Thank you.
5: And Ibrahim. My name is Ibrahim Musa. I'm professor of Islamic studies at the Keogh School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. I, uh, I work on Islamic law and ethics uh, broadly, and I have particular interest in bioethics. And I'm always intrigued that uh, Islamic, Muslim religious authorities around the globe, uh, when you have uh, the advent of a new technology, always say no. And after a few years, they say yes. And it's interesting to see how these theological resistance uh, turns into acquiescence. And I'm trying to figure out why and how that happens.
0: Thank you, Ibrahim. Our first witness is Robert Tappan. Robert is an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies at Towson University, and he has a book in process which is called Beyond Clerics and Clinics, and it's on reproductive technology in Iran. Robert, welcome. Thank you very much. What's your perspective on this uh, question?
6: So uh, I, I kind of feel like there are, there's a basic dilemma when you're thinking about um, gene editing technology in Islam. There's this, there's Islam's extraordinary historical drive to treat disease based on a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, and there are various versions, but I'll give you the standard version. There's no disease that God created, except that God also created its cure.
0: Should we hold that thought for a moment? And let's get straight on to Alim, your witness.
1: Okay. <clears throat>
4: Thank you, Robert. F- following up on that, one of the things that um, seems so striking about this technology, but a lot of these gene therapy type of technologies is not only are they about Eliminating disease, but sometimes they also seem to be about eliminating difference and vulnerability, especially if they're if that line between therapy and en- enhancement gets blurry. Sure. And so I wonder what Islam has to say, or how Muslim countries where you've done your research handle issues of handicap and difference, and uh, you know people who are differently abled and how they're perceived in in that context.
6: Right. Yeah. That's a that's a great question. For sure, uh, addressing issues of um, disability could be very important with this technology. And, you know, in some historically Muslim-majority countries, there are genetic diseases that lead to to disability and other problems. So it does seem like um, it it could be something that would be extremely valuable in addressing those concerns, because there are, you know, social and cultural issues Perhaps discrimination against uh, people with different disabilities. It's also harder, right? In the United States, perhaps we have the ADA and, and things like that that can help. What's the ADA? The sorry, the American Dis, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, whereas in you know a lot of other countries, not just in the Muslim world but elsewhere, it, it's hard to have a disability and get around and to uh, be a productive member of society. So uh, I think this kind of technology could be. Helpful, depending how it's used, to uh, to address some of those concerns. However, that's not to say, especially perhaps from the more religious perspective, right, that you're somehow in need of having this disability corrected. Okay. Uh, Robert, what scares you? What scares me about gene editing? That's a great question. Or about anything? Else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go for it. Well, we could go into all sorts of things, but that's a different topic. Um, I think and I, and I'm also thinking of this in terms of, perhaps from uh, an Islamic perspective, but but just simply as being an ethicist who's concerned with these issues globally, uh, things like uh, not only how humans are used, but uh, the use of animals in certain ways. And I'm thinking, especially, I mean I find it fascinating, but also horrifying you know, potentially horrifying chimeras and these kind of uh, you know human animal hybrids. So, uh, I just taught my first uh, class of the semester, uh, Faith Perspectives and Bioethics the other day, and you know started off with a screenshot of the pig embryo with the human DNA in it that was just created uh, recently. right? So the idea that these kind of technologies are are in some ways following uh, the market. There are things we could talk about there, the, the use of um, Uh, genetically engineered mice and and things that you all have mentioned. It's kind of big business. Uh, Those kind of things are frightening to, to sort of think about what we can do, maybe rather than what we should do, or how those two might go together.
0: Our next witness is Maura Ryan. Maura is Professor of Christian Ethics at the University of Notre Dame, which is where she joins us. Her primary interests are in bioethics and health policy, and her books include Ethics and Economics of Assisted Reproduction. Maura, welcome.
7: Yes, thank you. It's very good to be here.
0: And it's great to have you. And let's go straight to Michael Fitzgerald. Michael, your witness.
1: I wanted to start with, uh, I happen to have an advanced copy of a book called The Gene Machine by Bonnie Rockman, which looks at uh, the impact genetic technologies are having already on on parenting and, and on having kids. And she uses an example of the way that we've, used, uh, we've been able to isolate, say, uh, diseases like Tay-Sachs or, or conditions like Tay-Sachs and help parents um, come up, uh, fertilize eggs that uh, are not going to have uh, the, those chromosomes in them. Uh, and in fact, in one case, I think she described someone editing the chromosome out so that it's not there uh, at all and using that, egg, uh, that embryo can you talk a bit about whether this is a a potential uh, step forward for thinking about the uh, the ways in which we are going to see gene editing technology used in in, in a way that perhaps society could could be uh, in favor of by and large Mm
7: -hmm. sure well um If we think about, and here I want to speak from the point of view of uh, religious bioethics. So for, say, uh, many of the Christian traditions, the end of science, the end of medicine, is to serve health and well-being within the common good. And so we want to think about um, how is it that we create a common good, a how do we create the conditions through which individuals flourish together as a community. Uh, We celebrate the power of science and medicine to alleviate human suffering. But what goes along with that would be caution about assuming that we could somehow eliminate all suffering and caution about how our uses of science and medicine, our, our advances, uh, create a certain kind of society. So we would want to think about, uh, and, and we would also want to think from a from the standpoint of theological ethics, about how these interventions reflect or alter our notions of kinship, family, reproduction. Thank you. Deborah, your witness.
2: Yes. Hi, Maura. I have a a fairly simple question, which is we've been talking in an earlier discussion about trust in science, Mm -hmm. and it occurred to me to wonder, um, do ethicists have trust in science? Do ethicists believe that scientists are actually thinking and considering seriously some of the issues you're raising about how new technologies should be used and whether they affect the common good? Or do you have concerns, in fact, that technologies such as the one we're discussing today, CRISPR-Cas9 say, uh, are going to move forward without internal... Ethical consideration by the science Mm -hmm. community.
7: Right. I think it depends. Um, I would say that my concern lies more on the side of commercialization. I'm more concerned about um, there being no breaks on that side of the shop than there being no uh, serious ethical reflection on the part of scientists. That said, um, I agree that Um, what's missing is a concern for what we might call impact on the least well-off and concern for the way in which these technologies might well exacerbate existing inequalities. Thank you. Aline, your witness.
4: Um, hi, Maura. <clears throat> I'm going to go in a slightly different, different direction. When I first started hearing about gene editing, I was really struck by the metaphor of editing. I think it's a really interesting mm-hmm. one. And in a report that the Newfield Council on Bioethics issued on this topic, they addressed this question of the implications of using this language of editing, mm-hmm. suggesting that the, you know the genome is a book and scientists are going in as editors, which somehow implies that there's an authorial presence? Who mm-hmm. wrote this book? What are the implications of that? So it leads me then to wonder what you think about how the public's perception of this technology is shaped either positively or negatively by this metaphorical language.
7: I think that's a wonderful question. When, when I think of editing, I think not only of a text, but I think of improving a text. Mm-hmm. Right, so if I turn my manuscript over to an editor, I expect it to come back better than it was somehow. It in doesn't know done. <laughs> The journalists are shaking and their heads. <laughs> Even if we disagree, um, that the goal of good editing would be to make your text clearer and more uh, and, and better than it would have been otherwise, and I think that's very much a part of the way in which. Uh, the public perceives these technologies both optimistically and pessimistically. I think where it, religious traditions can contribute to this conversation is in uh, in recognizing that, you know, there is no perfect book, <laughs> right? There is no, that we are not going to edit out um, all forms of suffering, and that's not just. That we have to accept that because we've accepted it so far, because we didn't have any way to get out of it, but that it's built into our human nature. But where where
1: do you see this playing out on the ground? Uh, are is in effect are the the ethics of this going to be shaped by ministers uh, and other church leaders for you know for most people because they're going to look and say, oh, ethicists, so that's, that's someone who thinks big thoughts in, a, in mm-hmm. a place that I you know can't afford to go to. I'm not really sure that what they have to say actually matters to me, but this guy or woman in front of me in my congregation, what they have to say means a lot. So how important will that be for shaping this, this, this sense of ethics across the broader population, at least in the US? Mm-hmm. No, that's a
7: great question. Um, I would say that that most religious communities have professional ethicists who um, are not only... So so they're not only ministers, say, who would be trained in the ethical and philosophical and religious traditions of the particular community, but they have um, also scholars of ethics who participate in the larger academic uh, debates um, among ethicists. So there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of translation that goes back and forth between religious communities, pastors, preachers, uh, bishops, etc., and the scholars of ethics who are, one would hope anyway, informing the preaching and teaching and policy making within those communities. It takes us back again to this question of trust and transparency that keeps coming up. I, I don't think every ethicist has to be a scientist or every ethicist has to be a physician, uh, but you certainly need to know who you can trust in order to learn what you need to know to make an informed judgment. Maura
0: Ryan, Professor of Christian Ethics at the University of Notre Dame, thank you so very much. Thank you. Our next witness is Andre Vicini, Associate Professor of Moral Theology at Boston College. In the previous academic year, he was part of a Princeton University project examining the societal implications of astrobiology and his books include Human Genetics and the Common Good. Adil, he's your first witness. Thank you, Andrew. There seems to be a
3: consensus that some sort of regulation at some level um, is is appropriate. Um, Historically, religion has often been a font of regulation uh, uh on moral grounds, on edicts, on, on, in various ways because it had the authority. It remains for many people uh, a major basis of how they act on various issues. Um, in other contexts, governments take on that debate. Uh, meaning this is what Europe is doing, this is what the U.S. is doing, this is what this country in Europe is doing. And there is also the question of whether on something like this any regulation should be global. I wanted to get from you is where do you think the regulatory impulse should come from on on a question like gene editing?
8: I think the process of reflecting on how we address it should involve first scientists. But then there is a second level. I would like to expand the conversation to society, to the public. And religious bodies, religious thinkers are part of society as a whole. Finally, there is a third level. It is the level of international organizations and national organizations or national governments and states.
3: Do I hear you right in that you are saying science-led, first and foremost, society then and politics last?
8: I wouldn't uh, understand what I propose in terms of first and last, but in terms of those who are engaged and involved. So I would say there are different levels. It's not the first and after. There are the first, uh, first and the last. But I want to respect scientists who are able to address issues and also want to engage with them in a conversation about what are their perceived issues, scientifically and ethically. But then I would like, at the same time, a transparent and uh, engaged conversation within society about uh, the type of society that we want and how we want to address issues that concern health and disability.
3: Again, very just to stay on this point, can you think of another debate that we have had in recent years that you would want this to be like? For example, would you like a conversation somewhat like what happened or is happening with climate change or with some other field, or does this require something like we haven't seen in science
8: policy in recent years? I would say that we have some examples that I consider positive examples where there are all these different levels. The first one concerns the Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project was in the early 90s proposed as a major scientific endeavor to sequence the whole human genome. We didn't have the the technology that we needed to achieve it, and we were not aware of what were possible ethical issues that we had to address. So since the beginning, a part of the funding of this major international project was allocated to reflecting on ethical issues. And issues concerning the Human Genome Project also became public domain So there was a public conversation on this.
0: Our final witness is Abdulaziz Sachedina, who's Chair in Islamic Studies at George Mason University. He is one of the preeminent scholars in Islamic bioethics and his seminal book is called The Islamic Roots of Democratic Pluralism and also Islamic Biomedical Ethics. Professor Sachedina, thank you for joining us. Deborah, your witness.
2: I think my question is, and it follows out of an earlier discussion, aren't there... We seem to be dividing bioethics by Islam or by Christianity or by uh, atheism even, but aren't there universal ethical concerns regarding something like gene editing that would apply to everyone? In other words, should we be isolating this out?
9: I think religion has... um a role to play in certain cultures, and certain cultures do provide the credibility to the religious opinions as compared to, let's say, secular opinions or scientific opinions. And I think uh, Muslim culture predominantly would listen to its religious impulse more loudly than other cultures would do. Not that the people in that culture are all religious, but certainly they pay attention to what their scholars say, what the scriptures say. Would you have any justification for such and such opinion? Gene editing would be looked upon as providing benefit or not providing benefit being harmful to the society or to the individual not being harmful to the society or to the individual so the criteria that would be used would be to see how it serves the public therefore for example in in iran or in iraq you find the clinics that are operating without any regulation from the government and without any ethical you know qualms about what they are doing are free to do and more liberal than you can ever imagine. Down syndrome, for example, genetic prenatal genetic testing creates the possibility of saying that, okay, let's get rid of the harm that might come to the mother, or that might come to the family. or the family is too big. We are seven now. I have seven children, I don't want I don't want any more. So all those things really lead to what we call referring to the religious scholars, what do you say? You Ayatollah, what do you say about it? You Mufti, what do you say about it? And I think it comes at a point, people might not really obey the Ayatollah or the Mufti, but they want to know <laughs> that they have heard it. They might ignore completely what the what the scholars might say.
2: What they're going to ask. Yes. Yes, yes, yes.
0: Thank you, Deborah. Michael, your witness.
1: So when you look at, the question of how we regulate this kind of technology across societies—you you raise the point that that you know there are places where the, the rules, uh, the, the perspectives on things we've already seen emerge, reproductive technology, for instance, are much more restrictive uh, and much less. So, these—do you, do you see perhaps? Um, the the existence of a place where uh, where there may be no restrictions uh, shaping, uh, that being the place where all this stuff gets shaped, and in places, perhaps the U.S. being one of them, where we have uh, the sense that, well, maybe we should be regulating this and keeping it under wraps. you know Are we going to see this stuff emerge from someplace that doesn't care? Does regulation actually even matter <laughs> if that that disconnect exists.
9: I think very much, uh, most of these issues depend upon democratic culture, where people are ruled by the rule of law, where scientists don't act as elite group in the society and don't care for what society does and believes and sensitizes itself. I think there is um, a general trend Paternalistic medicine and paternalistic science, both are dangerous in terms of not informing the public what is happening in the scientific world. I think the hospitals are very much agnostic in culture. So you might wonder, I have lectured, for example, in Mercy Hospital in in Portland, Oregon, and it is a very different environment. This is a Catholic hospital. I haven't come across a Shi'i hospital that is directly uh, guided by the Shi'i values in Iran, and the values are very much what the physicians bring in. The physicians are the ones, if I'm religious, then I, I do care for it, but if I'm not religious, I don't care. majority of the scientific community that I come across in the Muslim world, are not religious. Or they might be outwardly religious because cosmetically you must pretend you are religious. We
1: we have potential for wild cards. That's right.
9: So it's, it's that kind of trend which doesn't allow religion really to take its proper place as ethical evaluation of the situation. Also, let us remember one thing, that Muslim culture is predominantly Sharia-oriented. Which means... The legality of the questions are far more important than the moral issues and dilemmas that we would raise.
0: So they're quite literalist.
9: And the diff- difference is that in ethical reasoning, you want to see the right and the wrong, but not in the other, you know, area. So uh, I think that that's the problem that we are faced with, that the law and ethics are not... Integrated in a sense whereby the ethics informs the legal decision making.
0: Adil, your witness. Yes. So
3: um, I, I'm <coughs> a little, uh, there, there are multiple arguments you're making, two of which I'm trying to reconcile, and I say this as a Muslim myself. I don't find convincing your suggestion that in countries that have lots of Muslims, uh, the will of the, what the scholars say means mu- much more. I, I don't see any evidence of that at all, except sort of in hand-waving. For example, uh, the scholars keep saying don't lie. People lie. They keep saying, don't be corrupt. People are corrupt. You yourself went on and say, you know, the, the, about the clinics and so on and so forth. So I, I, I get a little worried about sort of that definitive uh, view and where that will take us on gene editing. And then on, on, on the other side, this notion that people are not educated, which may be true. But I'm not sure that right now in Boston, everyone around us in sports bar is sitting, talking like we have been for the last star either. Right? So what <laughs> what I'm trying to get at is that once we label societies as Islamic or Muslim or whatever, do we not fall into the trap or the danger of trying to put frameworks around that label which we've just put on mm-hmm. them and miss really how policy is done? My sense on this is that on something like gene editing, while a conversation may be wrapped in religion... You yourself, what I'm hearing, partly saying is that while it will be wrapped in religion, it will actually be made on exactly the same principles right. as elsewhere in the
9: world. That's a very, very important point, very important observation of how I have dealt with it. I think it's, there seems to be a contradiction here in my own opinion, and I think I should go back, trace back some of my steps. I, I don't want to give the impression that the culture is monolithic, I don't want to say that everyone is agnostically acting or religiously acting, but I do want to say that there are forms of public information that you and I take for granted in Boston and Washington. They are not taken for granted in the Middle East, where I work. People are not newspaper reading all the time. The reading is very little done, Radio shows are heard, but they don't cover those issues. Television shows are there, they don't cover those issues. In other words, there is very little contact on such matters between the public and those who are communicating these ideas to the public. So therefore, there is a lacuna, there is a you know, vacuum of information. Not thoroughly, I would say, but let's say you went and asked average person about IVF clinics, operating in Iran, they wouldn't be able to tell you where they're located, what exactly are they doing. Not that there's an indifference in the population. And in Boston Boston and Washington, they will? In other words, what what I'm suggesting is that I don't want to give an impression of monolithic population in the Muslim world. But at the same time, I'm aware of the
0: diversity. Uh, Aline, your witness.
9: One of the things that seems so apparent
4: about this uh, gene editing and the CRISPR technology is the entrepreneurial aspect of it, the fact that people are making money from this and that a lot of that um, the, the commerce surrounding it is not being regulated. So it leads me to wonder whether Islam, Islam's ide- the, the ideas about entrepreneurship, free enterprise, competition. To what extent might they shape that aspect? And if there was any wisdom within Islam that might help people think about how to regulate the commercial aspects of this?
9: The commercial aspect, again, depends upon how the technology is marketed. Mm -hmm. If the technology is not marketed for general consumption, people don't know the value. And the value is known only by the scientists who are doing the research and who are, do- who are going to make big bucks out of that. So I think there is that dimension to it. And as I say that in my study of these, this literature, I see very little reference to the commercialization issue. There is not much reference to that. Yes, there is now that reference that is coming in organ donation. For example, I am now able to sell my kidney to save somebody's life. And because of the poverty, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to endanger my own life because I I have other responsibilities. In other words, what we are really seeing is that in the state system, there's hardly any regulatory um, I would say legislations controlling these matters. And the state itself is unfortunately corrupted. So there's hardly accountability for what they do. And that lack of accountability leads to a very damaging impact on how the technology is marketed, how the technology is introduced, and sometimes they are introduced without even the notice of the government, how it is done. It's like, you know, genetic testing is done now. Now, pre- marriage genetic testing is required by law in Iran. So you already have clinics that are doing that work, but they go beyond that. And there are no regulatory you know, ways of controlling what exactly is happening in those labs. So you have a lot of uh, need for the government regulation and the policymakers are not as fully aware as they ought to be. Because there's a lot of corruption, a lot of corruption. Michael, but final we, quick word.
1: We don't even know really the, the impact that genes versus culture have as things play out. So, so how do you inform people in these clinics about what, what it means if you, you have a, if a, a, a gene edited or a gene removed?
9: They do know this much, that the genes with which we are born are mutable. In the Shi'i world, they are known to be mutable. So there, there is no determinism that controls it. In other words, there is an open mind to what we call what changes in human nature, and it could, it is mutation could occur in the next generation or third generation. So there is that kind of you know attitude available. It's not universal though, and that information you know depends on how the culture is informing.
0: Professor Abdulaziz Achadina. Chair in Islamic Studies at George Mason University, thank you very much. We've heard from our witnesses, uh, starting Ibrahim with you. Has anything that you've heard caused you to change your opinion or to modify it? Or has been perhaps something that you weren't expecting?
5: Yeah, there's one, one area that um, you know, I've, I've not thought about a great deal is the whole question of regulation. And it came through very strong in this panel. I study... Uh, theologians who spout opinions and they don't think of regulation. That's the very critical thing. So in many parts of the Muslim world, theologians are autonomous. They, except for a place like Iran and others where they are part of the state, but not all of them. So they don't think in terms of governmental process. They don't think in terms of the big picture of the political economy of societies. They think through their textual traditions, their traditions of, of theology, And that's, for them, much more important. And to have coherence in that domain is preeminent, more important than the coherence of the larger state and structure. So regulation, one thing I will take away from this conversation is that how would I encourage people working in Islamic bioethics to think about the question of the big picture?
0: Aline, thank you.
4: Well let me say that i generally because of what i do i've have a fair amount of confidence in what ethicists can contribute to these conversations but then i have other moments and there were moments today where i find myself thinking now what is it exactly that ethicists bring to the table um and so
0: they did struggle a little, didn't they? Well,
4: I don't know that they struggled, but I mm. think it's partly the the question that I think Deborah raised uh, of uh, Professor Sacchedduina about: Are there universal mm. ideas or principles? Because that language of universality then suggests that citizens, you know, who are relatively well-educated, are capable of tapping into these universal principles. So even the principles that were released in that uh, document that the National Academy of Science and Medicine released uh, earlier this week, th- these are principles that you don't have to have have a PhD in ethics to understand, right? Avoiding harm, promoting good, being fair, respecting persons, and so on. And one other thing that, that I was struck by in the conversation uh, today is that that, that wasn't really touched on, and I wish we had more time to talk about it, which is the relationship between the individual good and the common good, right? So that so, so many of these decisions that when we're thinking as a society about do we how slowly do we want to move forward, because I think we are moving forward. I don't think there's any stopping it. But how slowly and deliberately do we want to move forward? Do we shape those questions around the needs of individuals? You know, my child who has cancer or my father who has Alzheimer's? Or do, I, do we think about it about what is in the best? interest of
3: the larger good. Uh, you asked whether something had changed in, in one's view of the question. I think it did, very similar to my colleagues. Um, unfortunately, I come with the unfortunate conclusion that the gap between the conversation on the ethical dimensions of gene editing and the policy, entrepreneurial realities of how change is and will happen mm. is much larger than what
0: I feared it was. Because in the past, the, um, the different communities of opposition have organized, I mean, I'm thinking, for example, the Catholic Church in the UN Population Conference of 94, you know, and including in the sort of the run up to so many climate change uh, conferences uh, where Different, you know, whether it's groups of religious believers or environmentalists or business lobbies, there's been a kind of groundswell of opposition. And I don't see that happening here. Is that what you... Uh,
3: Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. And maybe it will. Maybe it will. But there's Mm.
0: other, there are multiple ways
3: of things. There are multiple things that weren't mentioned. For example, the two parts of the world and two ethical frameworks that I think will eventually influence where this goes as much as anything else, weren't even mentioned in the whole conversation, not even by us, China and India. Mm the technological impulse to be technological leaders of these countries themselves. Mm -hmm. These are going to be, these are big countries. These are big science ambitions. That is going to drive what is going to happen in Europe, what's going to happen in the US. It's going to be a discussion of of these entrepreneurial impulses. Uh, They're very, very rich people. And I can, for example, envisage one of these mega rich people saying, I just want a son with green eyes and I'm going to have personal research done. I, I know it sounds a bit fantastic, but some of these things are going to move in very different ways.
5: So, uh, for instance, stem cell research has moved to uh, South Korea and Japan uh, after during the Bush era, and I think regulation there is less restrictive than uh, elsewhere.
2: Of course, South Korea had terrible problems with stem cell fraud as well. Yeah. Um, I think you make an excellent point. And when I was listening, because it did make me think, I thought, you you hear these sort of ethical universalities in which we are working toward uh, technologies that do no harm and technologies that serve a common good. And one of the challenges for us with gene editing is that we don't have those answers now. We actually don't know what the harm that could be done yet. We actually don't know. The common good yet so this is an important conversation to have before all of this plays out
1: Michael anything changed for you I, I came in thinking as I said that that regulation will emerge largely in response to consequences I still think regulation is going to emerge largely in response to consequences the consequences may be happening in other countries than the US uh, and we will res- respond to that so that hasn't changed I I also came in thinking about this weirdly prescient scene in the novel White Teeth. Uh, there's a character called Future Mouse. This is Zadie Z- 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 Smith's 2000, uh, novel published in 2000. So Future Mouse is a sort of important character in the plot, even though it's a, a mouse. It's a genetic, genetically modified mouse. There's chaos around this mouse. There's, there's the way that fundamentalist Christians react to it. There's the way that the secular atheists react to it. There's the way that the radical Muslims react to it. There's the way that uh, the kind of uh, average English bloke reacts to it, uh, the, you know, the guys at the pub and their, their families. And, and none of these perspectives really kind of agree uh, or can be brought together in a kind of coherent way. And I think in terms of—so uh, I, I, I came in with that kind of in my head. And I still sort of feel like from a religious perspective— and from a scientific perspective, there's a lot of reverence on both sides that's going to come into play. Uh, and we don't talk; we didn't talk at all about scientific reverence. But there's real, a, a real reverence, almost worship of science amongst, especially uh, uh, people who are secular. Uh, and I think that there's going to be some tension and conflict there that's got to get sorted out. It, it's not clear to me how that, it wasn't clear to me coming in how it's going to happen. Still not clear to me.
4: One interesting thing that strikes me about the Catholic view, for example, is that. One might have expected the, the two witnesses that we talked about who are coming at this from a Catholic perspective to have been really focused on the embryo. Because let's be frank, that has been an issue that has really concerned the Catholic Church over mm. the last you know, many decades on issues related to abortion, reproductive technology, and so forth. Yet, uh, Professor Ryan drew the attention to this question of justice. Mm-hmm. And I think that Pope Francis, if you look at his teachings and his writings, has really in some ways changed the subject a bit for Catholics so that his uh, Laudato Si, the encyclical on the environment, really focuses about on consumerism, commodification, on equality. And so it's interesting to me when I try to think about which argument is going to resonate most with everyday Catholics? And I suspect it's not going to be as much concerns about the three-day-old embryo and can we manip- manipulate it as much as it's going to be these kinds of concerns about justice, which then brings us back to your point about universal principles, because I think that's not just a religious issue. It's a more universal one.
0: Final brief point
3: Very, very, very <clears throat> short-parting thought, uh, The morality of ethics is central, absolutely important, but do not forget the economics of ethics Mm -hmm. and the politics of ethics. Mm -hmm. What took the U.S. to the moon was not just the Apollo program, it was the Sputnik program. Once Dolly came out, the conversation changed. Dolly the clone sheep. Dolly the clone sheep. You will, if you get things that go out on Twitter create waves of conversations. Our entire framework of how this happens is going to be very, very different because that's the
0: world we operate in. Adil Najam, Aline Kelbian, Ibrahim Musa, Deborah Bloom, and Michael Fitzgerald, thank you so very much.